So uh, what we're going to do today for part 13 of 26 is look at a story from Acts chapter 9. Um, you can get your Bibles ready if you like. You've also got study guides. I've got so many papers up here, I don't even know what to do with them all. All right, study guide is this sheet right here. That'll get you through today's message. <clears throat> so after today, we will be halfway through this 26-week series on the book of Acts. Today's part 13. And that's kind of weird um, to me because it's just in today's message and reading from Acts 9 that we're getting to know the guy who's going to be the main character in the book of Acts. I mean, like the Holy Spirit, we have said the Holy Spirit is the main, main character. But the guy we're going to get acquainted with today is like the main human character. And we've heard almost nothing about him. His name has only come up once in the first eight chapters of this book that he's about to sort of take center stage in. And, um, you know, this guy we're going to talk about today, his name was Saul. One of his names was Saul. I think he's probably the second most influential person in human history behind Jesus. That's my opinion based on impact. Time magazine disagrees with me. And, and that's not a, I'm not talking about what happened this week with Taylor Swift. And I agree with that decision, by the way. Um, Taylor Swift, most, what'd she get? Person of the year, I think, this year, this, this week. And uh, I mean, she had an extraordinary year, whatever. But in terms of human history, they put out a list a few years back and they put the Apostle Paul at, in the mid 30s, like 35, the 35th most, most influential person in human history. He was just one away. I think he was either one ahead of or one behind George W. Bush. And I, I know Houston is like a Bush town, and we're not supposed to say anything. I'm not going to say anything about the Bushes. I think W. has had a, a fulfilling life, made a big impact. He's now the Apostle Paul's. Like, <laughs> maybe there's some recency bias in that or something. Like, I need to talk to the people from Time Magazine. What are we talking about? The Apostle Paul, just one spot removed from George W. Bush. Like, I feel like he deserves a little more uh, uh, street cred than that. He's earned it. I mean, he has influenced life on earth, I think, uh, second only to Jesus in terms of his impact. So um, uh, the reasons why I say that are at least in part because he wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. 13 of the 27. If you put one finger at the beginning of Romans and another finger at the end of Philemon, you will see all the writings that Paul contributed to the New Testament. And those letters, those 13 letters, aren't even the only letters that he wrote during that time that he was writing letters. He wrote between the year 47 AD and about 62 AD, 15 year time period where he was being a missionary and starting churches and things and writing these letters. And, uh, and he wrote many more, I think, than what we actually have in the New Testament. Just incredibly influential person. <clears throat> the most prolific evangelist ever. But until this point, we're gonna get to in the book of Acts today, he's only been mentioned once and it was not a very a generous or a good look for, for Saul in his first mention in the book of Acts. Some of you remember Acts chapter 7, verse 57 and 58 said this. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this savage... This savage named Saul oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr, and then he's described elsewhere as overseeing the persecution of many others. I mean, he was out for blood. He was ambitious about his career as a Pharisee, as a Jewish authority, 
He was going for it. He was all in, super intense in his hatred of all things Christ. And, and we also know him now, ironically enough, interestingly enough, as not just Saul the persecutor, but Paul the apostle. How did that happen? A lot of folks think that when that happened, God changed his name from Saul to Paul. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible never says that God changed his name. In fact, there are indications that this wasn't a case where, you know, God changed Abram to Abraham. Uh, God changed Isaac to, um, I'm sorry, Jacob to Israel, right? There's never that moment in the Bible uh, about Paul or Saul. In fact, the indication seems to be that Saul was born a Jew, but he was part of the Jewish diaspora. So he didn't live where Jews were supposed to live. He lived out in the Gentile world. He said as much in Acts 22, verse 3. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. That was Gentile territory. And if you've ever, the reason I bring this up, if you've ever known someone who was the child of immigrants or the child of refugees, you know it's not that uncommon for them to carry two names around with them. The traditional name that relates to their heritage in their hometown and the name their grandma probably calls them, you know, when they go back home for the holidays or whatever. And then there's this more modern name that fits into the culture that they're living in now. Saul was a Hebrew name that would have made sense in Hebrew and in the Judean culture of Paul's roots. Paul was a Greek name that would have helped him fit in in the Gentile world that he was a part of. Okay, so this is probably why he's listed as having two different names. And in today's reading from Acts 9, we're going to see with our own eyes, how this man went from killing Christians to becoming one, and not just any Christian, but the leader of the church in its first uh, iteration. And these events that we're going to read about now took place between the year 34 AD and 35 AD. So this is very early Christian history. Okay? So if you have a Bible, you can open up with me. Um, you can open your Bible app if you're online. I hope you'll pull out a Bible as well. Those of you all at Timber Grove have Bibles available to you in the chairs in front of you. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 is where we, where we will um, begin. All right. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Excuse me. <clears throat> he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was the, the moniker for the church at the time, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So he doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? He's like, when you persecute my people, you persecute me. That's Jesus' point. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. Speechless. They had heard the sounds but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. A reference, for those of you that are paying attention through this series, this is not the same Ananias as the one who bit the dust because he held back a little. Remember that story? This is a different Ananias, just for reference. 
The Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, <clears throat> for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here to Damascus with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Well, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to produce I'm sorry, and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, brother, that gets me, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may again see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from, Paul's, from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, clearly a major turning point in the book of Acts, a major turning point in the history of the church. Paul will take center stage in this book and be the main character, along with the Holy Spirit, from now until Acts 28, when this series is over. Let me just point out today then, the 300-pound gorilla in the room, anytime you talk about Paul among folks that aren't all in with God and Christianity yet, or even some that do claim they are Christians, there's still this 300-pound gorilla in the room anytime you ring Paul up, and that is the fact that Paul was and remains highly unpopular. His approval ratings are nothing like those of Jesus. People like Jesus way more than Paul. It's always been the case for whatever reason. I mean, you, you heard Ananias' response when God's like, hey, go find this guy Saul. And Ananias is like, I've heard some things about this guy. Lord, I don't know if you know. <laughs> like, it's funny how naive we are with God sometimes. I don't know if you're aware, but I've been hearing some things about this guy you're so high on, and I think you ought to know, you know, and God's like, just go. I've got a plan for this one. And Ananias had to trust the Lord, but that told you where Paul's reputation stood among the Christians. Ananias wasn't the only one, by the way. If you keep reading in the book of Acts chapter 9, you'll find this other passage where Paul, after some time, goes to Jerusalem to try to blend in with the other Christians. He just tries to go to church, and they're freaking out. They're feeling some type of way about it. Acts 9 verse 26, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. It's the same guy that had been killing them, dragging them out of their homes, persecuting them, chasing them, hunting them down. And now he's like, where's the coffee, guys? No, no, no. <laughs> Parking lot's too small. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You know, he's up to something. That's the, that's the vibe. And, and, and it took some time for the Christians to accept him. And throughout the New Testament, you find this same kind of tension cropping up between Paul and other Christian leaders. Paul and Barnabas had beef for a time. I mean, Paul and John Mark didn't always get along. Paul and Peter kind of went back and forth a little bit. And I think it's just because Paul was just that intense. And, you know, sometimes intensity brings with it, you know, it's, it can be an acquired taste for other people when someone's so intense. Paul was laser-like focused on whatever he was doing in life. I think that's why he wasn't married. 
He was a career Pharisee before Jesus found him. He was climbing the ranks. He had no time for romance or anything else. He was singularly focused. And, and that's off-putting a lot of the time to many people. And it continues to be off-putting to many people today. I, I always run into people, even at this church, I'm mean, going to be honest, I don't mean to call anybody out. I'm always running into people that are like, I love Jesus. <clears throat> Paul, not so much. I like Jesus, but I struggle with Paul. You know, I feel like Jesus is cool, but Paul just seems repressed. Jesus was all grace. Paul was all rules. Jesus loves me as I am. Paul, I feel like, would just be the kind of guy to judge me from a distance. You know, that kind of, that's the vibe I get from Paul a lot. And I think that's a misunderstanding, first of all, of Jesus. If you don't think Jesus spoke about the risk of condemnation, no one's talked more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. So I think we try to soften Jesus sometimes, but we also give Paul a bad reputation by not reading what he actually wrote after Jesus found him. Paul understood grace more than just about anyone. Um, but I, I run into people saying things like this all the time. This is some of the stuff I found online. It's not hard to find this stuff. Just do a simple search on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. This is from someone who's called At Gay Realist. And he wrote, the Bible was written by man, interpreted by man, and as a consequence is rife with the imperfection of man. I follow the teachings of Jesus, not the writers of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and certainly not Paul. That's the vibe. And I'm not throwing this guy under the bus or anything. I, I think we could spend the rest of the sermon sort of picking this apart a little. Let me just briefly, I'll just say, I hope no one ever tells him who wrote the teachings of Jesus. It's like the same men he's criticizing about <laughs> all the other parts of the Bible wrote the teachings of Jesus down too. So it's hard to pick and choose, right? It's impossible to pick and choose which writings are going to be authoritative or not if you don't understand the Spirit's inspiration of Scripture. And then we have this from uh, another woman, last name Espinal, and uh, she wrote, the teachings of Paul destroyed the Gospels. Just for reference, historically, the teachings and writings of Paul came before the Gospels. So Paul wrote his letters without the four Gospels that we have today. Those were written soon after, but he wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. And Paul, she writes, was the worst thing that happened to Christianity. The worst. And I could make a case that Twitter's the worst thing that ever happened to grammar or the English language, but I'm not going to be snarky like that. Paul is the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity in the gospel, she wrote. And look, this is just how people feel about Paul. More people than you probably think. They're like, I like Jesus, let's stick to you know, the gospels, but let's not get into Romans or 2 Timothy or what have you. And it, This is purely um, anecdotal on my part, but I feel like I've got enough anecdotal evidence to build a case. I think the more woke and worldly a person is, the more prone they are to resist Paul. And it makes sense because Paul, more than maybe anyone else in the New Testament except Jesus, comes out swinging against the woke Western world's favorite idols. He's the one who comes out swinging against you know, all the, um, the idols of our world today like uh, more extreme versions of feminism, for example, or pride, um, sexual liberation, quote-unquote, um, and gender fluidity and things like that. He'll come out against that in his 2,000-year-old writings, and people to this day still hate him for it. And um, 
Paul never seemed to mind being hated by men, by certain men. But even before his conversion, he didn't mind being hated by Christians. He wanted to make, you know, his higher-ups in the, in the Sanhedrin happy, and he was striving to that end. But once Jesus found him and called him and claimed him, he didn't really care which men liked him and which didn't. He was living for something higher. And being unpopular never bothered him. It occurred to me this week that that might be exactly the reason why God chose Paul for the task of leading the church through the age of persecution. Those days that are awaiting us in the book of Acts that we're about to read about, those were not for the faint of heart. It was not the time for, you know, friendly Parson Brown to, you know, to just love everybody into heaven. And it's like, it was great. It's great to be that way. But these were, these were times of warfare, spiritual warfare and battle. And the church needed leaders who cared only about God's approval and not man's. And so it makes sense why the Lord would single Paul out for this cause. And the truth is, if we're being honest, a lot of us today... Pastors included spend far too much time worrying about what people think and how people approve of us or not than we do um, thinking and wondering how God sees us and what God sees in us, how God can use us. And I think we should be called to the mat as far as that is concerned. I personally spent so many years trying to impress all the right people. I didn't really care if I impressed Christians in those years. I wanted to impress the cool people. And those were not the Christians, in case you were wondering. For all those years when I lived in Kansas City, I, I sought to impress the right people with my political views, spoken with such sophistication. I wanted to impress people with my altruism. I liked helping people. But there was one thing I liked more than helping people, and that was telling everybody how much I helped people. I loved trumpeting my own virtue. Virtue signaling, when the gods of this age called upon everyone on social media to post the right thing in your profile picture, I was the first in line. The French flag, check. The rainbow flag, check. The red equal sign, check. The black square, check. Whatever you need, I'm here for you, lords of this world, and I got rewarded for it in the eyes of those whose approval I sought. You know how amazing it is to be a Methodist pastor and have artists and musicians actually like your posts on Facebook? You know how good that feels to be approved of by the cool kids or artists from Kansas City and musicians that I followed on social media would comment whenever I changed my profile picture to the cause du jour. Wow, finally, they would say, finally, a pastor who gets it. And I would ride high for days on that comment, man. I just lived for that. Academics that I knew loved my take on the Bible and Christianity. Bartenders struck up conversations with me. Finally, a pastor who drinks like the rest of us. <laughs> Artisanal coffee roasters once named a, a coffee blend after me. Do you know how that feels when you're trying to be a hipster pastor accepted by the world? Everybody, it seemed, everybody liked talking to the pastor who only talked about the parts of the Bible that everybody liked. I was almost everyone's favorite pastor. Everyone, maybe, except the only one whose opinion of pastors really matters. 
And 10 years ago, as many of you know, I was brought to my knees in my own Damascus, Damascus Road experience. And my experience happened steps away from the actual Damascus Road. It was just a, a few paces from that beaten path in northern Israel, in Capernaum. I don't need to rehash the whole story, but Jesus met me in such a powerful way, I have him in the same sense, truly changed, inside out. In some ways, it was instant. In other ways, it's been gradual. But that day, so much about me changed. And that night, I did what I had always done when something important happened in my life. I took to Facebook. It was 2013. People still posted on Facebook in 2013. And this is what I said that same night. As you'll see, January 30th, 2013, I wrote, this trip has brought me to my knees. All lowercase letters, because that's how the cool kids typed in 2013. This trip has brought me to my knees. And I meant that literally. Earlier that day, I was literally on my knees on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. One thing I love emotionally from an emotional standpoint, sorry if y'all can't see this, the first person to like it here, Giovanna Huffman, Pastor Gio, who's always been the first to stand up and support and love me through, it, through, through everything. The, the same was true with this. Whenever somebody asked me in that same thread what it was about that experience, in Capernaum that changed my life, this is how I responded to one of their questions. Again, 10 years ago, you can see it down there, it says, I, I, I say in response to what they had asked, yes, in fact, I wrote, it expels every unspoken doubt that I've carried with me for years. Jesus was a real person, a real live person. It's not a fairy tale or the opiate of the masses. When I wrote those words about the doubts I'd had about Jesus, I had already been a pastor for 13 years. It's not that hard to get away with it. It's a pretty sweet gig. You only work on Sundays. I'm just kidding. But I'm not kidding about the fact that I was lost. And even worse, I was leading others astray for years all those academics and bartenders and artists and everybody else who I convinced Jesus loved just as they were and had no desire to change them. Hmm. I was lost. Lost in the intensity of my own politics, my own popularity, blinded, really, unable to see what I was doing and the gravity of it. And when I finally met Jesus, it's interesting to me, he didn't change my intensity level. In fact, he probably has made me more intense. Even as I've gotten older, I just get more and more intense. Because he doesn't take away your intensity, he'll just repurpose it. And I know there's a lot of people, men especially, who hesitate surrendering to Jesus because you don't want to become some new kind of weirdo. And I'm here to tell you, when you surrender to Jesus, you'll still be the same kind of weirdo. He doesn't take your passions away, in other words. He just gives your passions a new priority to revolve around and build toward. One that doesn't take away from your life, but adds to it and adds to the lives of others as well. Now, one key to understand about Paul's story, and maybe your own, I know it's true of mine, is that it doesn't always happen right away, that you come to faith in Jesus, you surrender to the Lord, and then you've got it figured out and you're off to the races. One thing you, you won't know unless you read between the lines is that more than 10 years passed 
between Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road and his first missionary journey where he really took the reins and became an active minister. More than 10 years, maybe 12 years passed between those two events. And in the meantime, he was training, he was praying, he was blending into the Christian community, he was taking the mentorship of other more seasoned Christians, he was learning about Jesus, and he was waiting to see what to do about Jesus, what to do about this new life he had in Christ. And sometimes it can take a minute. I've seen new believers catch fire, and then immediately the fire is tapped out because they're, they're impatient about what's next. Look, it takes time. Now, over the last um, 10 years since my own conversion, a lot has changed. Two years after that experience, we had moved to Houston and we started the Story Church. I was converted in 2013. We started the Story in 2015. And much of the last eight, almost nine years has been me working out in front of all of you with your support what exactly it is I'm supposed to do about Jesus and what he did to me on that shoreline over 10 years ago. If you go back and listen to some of my early sermons, I'm telling you, be careful. There's still some heresy in there, man. Like, I was working it out with all of you. And it's, I'll probably look back 10 years from now at these sermons and go, what? What was he thinking, right? It's like, that's what happens. The Lord takes us as we are and works with us. We're all works in progress. And this is all to say, just be, be patient. Don't tire out as the Lord shapes you and remakes you into his image and for his purposes. That said, the Lord does love clarity, and he does bring clarity to those who seek it. And the last 10 years have brought me a lot of clarity. I feel clearer than ever today about what exactly it is we're supposed to do about Jesus, the one who brings us to our knees. And some of that clarity comes from keeping one eye deep in the word and keeping the other eye on the world. So I was used to keeping an eye on the world, but I had to get used to keeping an eye on the word and going deeper in the word and understanding God's unchanging nature by virtue of just basking in the word and trusting what I'm reading in the word, but still keeping an eye on the world. And I don't know if you've noticed what I've noticed. As much as the word of God never changes, the world is always changing. And it seems like we have crossed a threshold in the world today, where the dark and sinister forces at work are done playing poker. There's no more tricks. There's no more cards up their sleeve. All the enemy's cards are on the table now. He's like overt, the enemy is. Satan, I'm talking about, the devil. He's, he's like overt about his desires now. It's, it's shocking, really. Some of you are young. You don't even know how different the world was. 20 years ago, when Satan was much more hesitant and reticent about coming out and showing his hand like he is today, but the world as we see it today is an overtly dark place. We can be honest about that. I watched, like many of you this week, watched in horror as the presidents of four of the most prestigious universities in America testified before Congress that calls for genocide of Jews do not necessarily violate their institutional codes of conduct. Overt calls for the genocide of Jews do not necessarily constitute a violation of their institutional code of conduct. 
Take the word Jews out of that sentence and replace it with any other word, any other group. And you can see what a travesty, what a shock it should be for us that in our generation, just like in almost every other generation in history, we have an uprising of people in the world who would be just fine if the Jews just went away. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it and why? It can't be just political. Why does this small, relatively small group of people always have Satan's sights on them? Why is their destruction always imminent? Could it be a spiritual reality? Could it be that they're the ones God loved into his kingdom first and the one through whom God chose to save the rest of us? Could it be that those, that community is so important to God that the enemies of God can't stand it? I know there's skeptics that will roll their eyes at that, but I'm, I'm done being cynical. I'm ready to be truthful, and I can find no other reasonable explanation for the historical generational hatred of the Jews. It's extraordinary. Again, cards on the table. That's the time we're living in. The next day after I watched that interview, I was uh, turned on to this other investigation that is coming to light now. It's an undercover investigation of the online porn industry. And, and this former actress has now decided to go full, like, guns blazing against the porn industry. And she has, um, she has taken ex executives from Pornhub and the parent company of Pornhub, MindGeek, if you don't know what Pornhub is, uh, just stop lying. Okay, so um, the <laughs> it's a, the most prolific uh, porn site on the web. And uh, she took these executives from these companies out to dinner under the, I think under the guise of a date. She's an attractive woman, and so nothing gets men talking like an attractive woman on a date. And so these men just spill the beans, and they're executives for this porn company that is affecting millions, hundreds of millions of lives every day, every week, every month. And they, in these conversations that were recorded, video and audio, there's nothing gimmicky about it, they not only championed the fact that young people, and by young I mean 11, 12, 13-year-old children, are freely able to access everything on Pornhub with no barriers or firewalls or verification or anything. Just click a box that says you're 18 and we'll take your word for it. Isn't that great that they can come and and discover and explore their sexuality on our website. Isn't that great, they said? And not only were they championing and celebrating the fact that children can go and find themselves sexually on these websites, but they also showed their hand and revealed that they are, um, uh, they are manipulating and actively targeting those kids by showing them certain kinds of content that can steer them in one way or another in terms of their sexual preference. And if a child is sexually confused, gender confused, bi-curious, they said, they'll show them certain kinds of content, more and more of that content, in order to, and this was the executive who was interviewed, this was his word, in order to convert them to their true identity. Evil. Evil. These are children. This is sinister. Where's the outcry? The darker the world gets, the louder the outcry should get, but unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer people willing to cry out. I don't want you to hear me saying it's all doom and gloom. It's not. The Lord is good, and he's unchanging. 
He made the world good. He'll make the world good again one day. But for now, we have to open our eyes up to the fact that we live in evil days. And we who are in the light of Christ are, by virtue of that reality, at war. We are at war. Not with people, not with any group, not with the atheists, not with the liberals, not with that. We're at war with the father of lies. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil and darkness in this world. Nevertheless, we are at war, and we are up against this enemy who rejoices in human death, destruction, and desolation of innocence. Paul saw that, I believe. That's what motivated him in the second half of his life after Jesus got a hold of him. He saw that he had been an agent of evil. He repented of that, came into the light, and spent the rest of his life as an agent of Jesus Christ and his army in the world, shedding light everywhere that he went. Paul saw that. The first Christians saw the reality of the world they were up against and they were living in. I hope we today as Christians in 2023, 2024, 2024, Houston, Texas, living in our relative comfort and ease, I hope we have the courage to see it too, that we are indeed at war. Light versus darkness, good versus evil. When you see it, you can't unsee it, and you realize that this reality should shape everything we do as Christians. It should change the way we raise our kids. Maybe, if that's going on online that I described earlier, maybe we shouldn't give our children free, unhindered access to the internet. Parents, maybe we should be more proactive, more militant about the way we police our children online. <laughs> Maybe we should be careful about the ways we trust our children whose minds are still forming with devices, giving them unlimited, unfettered access, unlimited time online on devices where they're being shaped by the Antichrist. Maybe this is a call to arms, a call to action for us to change the way we look at what we're doing with our lives. Look, we're not just drifting through this comfy life in Houston, Texas. We're living in a time of war, good versus evil, something's at stake. Will it be risky? Yes. Could we lose something in this fight? Of course. Is it a war worth fighting? Absolutely. This is why it's so important to keep our eyes on the end game, which is the lost being found, sinners being redeemed, people that think they have They've sent themselves to the point of being so far from God that they're irredeemable, coming home. People like me, people like Paul, so many of you, sinners who came home and found grace and were saved. There's nothing like seeing someone who's so lost becoming found. You see it in their face. I could share a hundred stories of people in this room right now. I found this short video that I wanted to show you instead for the sake of brevity. It's a video of a former porn star. Um, he, he'll tell you he filmed over a thousand movies and things and all kinds of different porn genres and all this stuff. And just as far from Jesus and the gospel as you probably can imagine. But even he 
had a place in God's kingdom. Let's watch this together. You know, after six years and a thousand movies, I've made over a million dollars. I've won 18 different awards. And I thought if I won that, I would feel validation, peace, joy, but instantly anxiety was amplified. Depression was deepened. I quickly started thinking about taking my life. And walked this girl one day and she was the prettiest thing I've ever seen. And she looked me in the face and said, those things don't define who you are. And then we end up in church and uh, this pastor gets up and he starts preaching this sermon. What I was struggling with was why would God in flesh die for me? My own dad didn't want me in perfect timing. He starts reading out of Hebrews 12 and he talks about how Jesus it was with joy set before him, he endured the cross. So he was perfect in every way. So of course he was obedient to the Father, but he loved me. This is what we're fighting for. Not our own glory, but God's. Not our own good, but the good of the lost, the poor, the oppressed, the captive. Men like this, maybe men and women like some of us in this room right now, or over at Timber Grove or joining us online. I believe this is what we're here to do. This is why Jesus spoke to me in Capernaum. This is why Jesus, he's spoken to many of you. This is why I believe he's given us this firm foundation here in this part of town to call home. This is why he's called the Timber Grove community to be established in the heights. This is why he does what he does with us so that we might go to war against the darkness for the sake of those who are lost and alone, afraid and fatherless, for the sake speaking and seeking the truth of God at all costs. I'm way over time. I've got to wrap this up. I just want to say if the Lord is working in your heart, don't take it for granted. Don't listen to the world telling you it's just a phase or an illusion because it's real. You were made for more than what you've been living for, most likely. You were made for a greater purpose, to fight the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. <clears throat> we thank you for your apostle Paul, for his story of redemption, and how it reminds us of the ways in which you speak to us and redeem us in spite of our sin and how lost we've been. Open our eyes to the purpose you've set before us, and may we be the, the church you've called us to be, unafraid of uh, being unpopular in the eyes of the world, unafraid of speaking the truth in spite of its consequences, because this fight before us, this spiritual battle is a fight worth fighting. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.